one of the overarching themes of the Bible is love. First and foremost, God's love. The most famous verse of all times is probably John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. And throughout the entire Bible, we're reminded of God's love for His children. But we, as His children, are also told to love. We are to love God, of course, above all else. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, He responded, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And He didn't stop there at loving God. He went on to say, Love others. He said, And love your neighbor as yourself. And throughout the Bible, we're told to love. In John 13, 35, we are told this is how the world will know that we are believers, that we love one another. Jesus even told us to love our enemies. And there's an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, which is devoted to love, where Paul goes into great detail on what love looks like, what it does, how it acts and responds. The topic of love in the Bible is exhaustive. And when you hear the word love, even out of scriptural context, we use it all the time. We love our families. We love our children, our spouses, our friends. We love certain TV programs. We love sports teams. We love the garden. We love chocolate. (laughs) I knew some of you would like that. All of this represents something of our desires and they conjure up good feelings, positive emotion. But there is a love that is not so good, not so positive. In fact, it is forbidden. There is a love that God says should never be. A love that condemns a man. That disqualifies him from eternal life. That forbidden love is the subject of our passage that we're going to be looking at this evening. If you have in your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles with you. And we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 17 of chapter 2. And we want to examine closely this forbidden love. But before we get into our text, just a little background. Almost all conservative Bible scholars agree that the Apostle John wrote the text. Most scholars also agree that John wrote this letter later in his life, that he was an older man at this point. And there are many reasons, but one of which is that several times throughout the letter, he referenced his readers as little children, indicating that most likely he was much older than his readers. John was also writing from Ephesus, which at the time was a melting pot, and there was all kinds of false religions going on there. If you looked at a map of the region, you would see that it was a land bridge between Asia and Europe, and there would have been a lot of traveling back and forth, which would have presented a lot of different ideologies and philosophies and religions that would have been influencing the church in John's day. This was also the time period that the Gnostics were coming onto the scene. If you remember them, you remember that they were the ones that considered themselves the spiritual elite of the day. One of the things among many that they believed was that the body was just a prison that the spirit was trapped in. And so they didn't put any emphasis on physical morality. They didn't think it was all that important. And because of the Gnostics teaching and other false teaching that was infiltrating the church, John, 
as this father figure writes this letter to his little children in the faith, he puts an emphasis on testing their faith. He wants to see if it is genuine. He wants them to see if their faith is genuine. He wants them to be sure of their salvation. He doesn't want them to be deceived by these false teachers. He's already given them several tests. If you flip through the earlier chapters and verses of 1 John in chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, for instance, he gave them the test between light and darkness. Were they walking in the light or were they walking in the darkness? In chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, he shares the test of obedience. He told them that we know that you are in Christ if we obey his commandments. And if we say we know him and yet we do not obey him, he said they were liars. In chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, John adds the test of loving your brother. He says, if you hate your brother, you're still in the darkness. And by darkness, he means you're blind and lost. So now we come to our text in chapter 2 verses 15 through 17, which he follows the same pattern. Here he gives them a test of worldliness and an instruction on what not to do. Listen along as I read 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him if he loves the world. He goes on, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, are not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In these two short verses we're going to study this evening, we're going to see a simple, straightforward outline. Simple to see, simple to understand, not always so simple to put into practice. We are told what not to do and why not to do it. What not to do and three reasons why we're not to do it. First, the command, what not to do. He says, do not love the world. Verse 15, do not love the world. The forbidden love is the love of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, he said. Not a particularly difficult phrase to understand as long as we understand what the word love and what the word world means. As you probably know, there are several different words used in the original language for the word love. And the one used here is the same word that was used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It is the word Jesus used when he said to love your neighbor and love your enemies. It is that love that is unconditional and it's not a feeling, but is a choice. Which is important to note, when one loves the world... He's making a choice to love the world. Which is important to note. It's a choice to love the world. And it's a much stronger word than he likes the world or he enjoys the world. Those who love the world make a choice and to make it their aim and ambition in life. To set their affection on it. To set their desires on it. So in that context, it's easy to understand what it means to not love something. Do not set your affection on it. Do not make it a high priority. Do not make it a strong desire. So we are forbidden to set our affection 
on the world. We're not to make the world a high priority. So the question then becomes, what does John mean by the word world? What exactly are we not to love? What is the world? The actual word world in the original language comes from the word we get our word cosmos from. It literally means order or arrangement. So I looked it up in my Greek-English lexicon and there were eight actual different meanings of it. But there were basically three common meanings that were used in the New Testament. So then context then has to tell us what it meant, what determines the meaning. Context does. So the first use, the common use of the word world is just the created world, the world that God made. The sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, all the planets, the whole of God's creation in physical form. And we know that this could not possibly be what John is talking about here because God, when he got done creating it, what did he say? It's good. He said it's good. He declared it good. The created world displays the glory of God. That could not possibly be what John is talking about. God would not forbid us to love his creation. So the second common usage of the word world is the world of humanity, of people. Again, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That wasn't talking about the created world. That was talking about the world of people, humanity. And he commands us though, we know that he commands us to love people. Jesus constantly told us to love people. So this would not be, again, the use of the word world here. Because we, we know that God wants us to love people. So the third use of the word world, and the one that John is referring to here, is the evil, sinful system of ideology and philosophies of aims and values that have reference only to this life. It's the corrupt world system that stands apart in opposition to God. It is the world governed by Satan. Listen as I read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2. This describes this world. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Paul said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the love that God forbids. It's the love of this corrupt, evil, anti-God world system that we were all a part of before we were saved. This is the world that we're not to love. But John doesn't just give us the command to love not the world, but he also gives us reasons. I wonder if any of you had parents that when you were a child, you asked the question, why? And did you ever get the response, because I said so? Don't you hate that answer? We want reasons, don't we? Don't just tell me what to do. Tell me why I need to do it. Don't just tell me what not to do, but give me reasons why. Now, to be clear, we would be accountable to God if he gave us no reasons, because he's God. But he is gracious, and he didn't just give us this command to not love the world, but he gave us not one, but three reasons why we should not love the world. Reason number one. Why we should not love the world is that if a person loves the world, they demonstrate a lack of saving faith. 
Remember what John is doing. He's giving them another test to apply to their lives, to help them be assured of their salvation, to examine themselves, to see if they're in the faith. And in verse 15, he says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's pretty straightforward. If you love the world, you could say it another way. You could say, if you are worldly, you're not a true believer. John was saying that you can be assured of your salvation if you do not love the world. One of the tests of a true believer is that they are not in love with this world or the things in the world. That's a tough statement. Why is it tough? Because we all live in this world, don't we? We certainly enjoy aspects of this world. But if we are in love with this world, this evil system of ideologies and aims and values that reference only this life and are opposed to God, we are not saved. Now, it doesn't mean that those who are tempted by the world or those who struggle from time to time with worldly attitudes, he's talking about those who are in love with this world, who have a pattern of consistently forsaking the things of God and walking after the course of this world. You may know that there's an example in the Bible of such a person. You may be familiar with the man named Demas. We don't know a lot about Demas. But what we do know is not good. We know that he was a co-worker and a missionary who assisted the Apostle Paul. He's listed a couple of places. One is in Philemon. And he's listed along with Mark and Aristarchus and Luke. He's listed in Colossians in chapter 4 verse 14 along with Luke again sending greetings to the Colossian church. So from these short verses we learn that he was a co-worker of Paul's. And for several years he traveled and worked with Paul. And not only Paul, but other disciples. But listen to what Paul says about him in 2 Timothy 4.10. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Wow. These words ought to put some fear into some Christians. When you pair these words with the words in our text today, you realize that Demas, a proclaiming Christian, a co-worker in the ministry, didn't just desert Paul. He didn't just make a decision to get out of the ministry and simply just be a Christian with a secular vocation. Scripture tells us that he was in love with the world and that he deserted Paul and turned his back on the gospel. How can I say that? Because our text says that. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If the love of the Father is not in you, then you are not a regenerated man. You are still dead in your trespasses, walking after the course of this world, as Ephesians 2 says. One of the ways you know someone is a true believer is that they endure in the faith just a couple of verses on down from our text in 1 John 2 verse 19 John actually says the same thing he says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us if you haven't witnessed this in your lifetime and fortunately you probably will I have I knew a young man approximately 20 years ago that seemed to be on fire for the Lord. 
He graduated seminary, became a youth minister, was instrumental in actually leading several people to Christ. And actually the youth ministry thrived under his leadership. And then he ended up going off and starting a church in a small town that we were living in. He was actually instrumental in getting my wife's sister and my brother-in-law and their son and daughter involved in church. And the church was growing. Everything on the surface seemed to be going well. But somewhere along the line, his faith grew cold. He hid it for a long time. But underneath, I believe he was in love with the world. And he was enticed by what we're going to talk about in a moment, the lust of the flesh. And it came out a little bit later that he was having an affair with a young woman in the church. He ended up stepping down from the ministry and went into secular work. And to my knowledge, he never repented and never went back to church after that. It's so sad to see that. He left many confused and confounded. How could this young man who seemingly was so energetic and passionate about ministry now turn his back and walk away? It's because he loved the world more than he loved God. And this love of the world is a sign that he never truly had a saving faith to begin with. So we see the first reason John gives us for not loving the world is that by loving the world, one demonstrates a lack of saving faith. Because that's not what true children of God do. Have you heard the term worldly Christian or carnal Christian? It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? The word carnal means fleshly. Scripture does not allow that. You cannot be a carnal, earthly Christian. That's why the Bible says you will either hate the one or love the other and you can't serve two masters. We are either children of the light or children of the darkness. There is no in-between. Being in love with the world demonstrates a lack of saving faith. The second reason John says that we're not to love the world is that the world and the things of the world are in opposition to God. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I think it's important as we look at this command to note that John doesn't say, don't love the world too much. Many would tell you that it's okay to love the world, but don't love the world too much. Someone in our family once told Terry and I it was okay to be religious, but don't be fanatical about it. Don't carry it so far as to think God might want you to be a missionary or something. I think the real motive was they didn't want us to move away and take our precious little children that we had at the time from them. But that's not what John says. John doesn't say don't love the world too much. Don't be too fanatical. He says emphatically to not love the world at all. And the reason he says this is because the things of the world are in complete opposition to God. Their source, their origin is not from God, but from the world. Actually from Satan, who is the prince of this world. And to clarify and make sure there's no doubt about what he's talking about, he goes on to identify and specifically list the things we're not to love about the world. And he lists three things. The first of which is, the desires of the flesh. And of course, this refers to the animal-like instincts of the fallen nature of man. The word used here is sometimes translated lust. 
It's a strong desire or a lust after something. And it's the flesh refers to that which we have inside of us, that sinful fleshly desires that derive from inside of us. Now, of course, we always first instinct is to go to the word sex when we think of lust. But that is definitely included, but that's not what it's limited to. Any strong desire that is outside of God's desires would be fleshly desires. If you are familiar with the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, right before that, Paul lists some of the deeds of the flesh that will give us some idea of what some of these things are. Galatians 5.19 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The lust of the flesh is that sin that radiates from within the heart of fallen man. It is the sinful nature that we were all dominated by before we were saved and given a new nature. Again, remember the context. John is still writing to give them these tests to apply to themselves to see if they are truly saved. And these sins should not be the pattern of our life anymore. Yet for all Christians, even though we have a new nature, we still have a physical body that we continue to struggle at times with these deeds of the flesh. They're just not going to be the pattern of our life anymore. John then goes on to list a second way in which the system ruled by Satan entices men into sin. And he calls that the desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. Now the eyes are a great gift from God, are they not? Our eyesight is such a gift. With our eyes we can enjoy a beautiful sunset, the wonder of the animals God made. We can witness the smile of our wife, the preciousness of our children and grandchildren. Our eyes help us function and serve myriads of beneficial purposes in our life. But with our eyes, we are also tempted, enticed by the world into sin. All kinds of temptation come to us by our eyes. And to be clear, it's not really the things that we see, but it's the covetousness, the idolatry, the discontentment that may be aroused by what we see. It's when we view things outside of the realm of God and His eternal purposes that it becomes the lust of the eyes. A great example of this in Scripture, of course, is in the life of King David. When I was in Israel in 2014 with Pastor Steve and a group from Lakeside, I stood on the top of the hill where David's palace would have been. And we looked over the city of David. And it was built on a hill. Even today, as you stand on that hill looking over, you can see the rooftops of the houses below. And even today, there's still courtyards on many of the rooftops. And people hang out up there. And as I thought about that, I really could picture David standing there, looking over the hillside, and saw Bathsheba there on the courtyard bathing and I turned to my wife Terry and I relayed what I was thinking you know about that to her and she without hesitation said you shouldn't be doing that (laughs) that's not something you should be thinking about 
That's a great warning here to all of us about guarding our eyes. And it is not only sexual sin that is brought on by the lust of the eyes. We can see a new sports car, a bigger house, and we might covet. Many temptations are brought to us through what we see. Again, it's not these things, but it's the attitude of the heart that is exposed as to what we see as we get away from God's thought process and we look at things through man's selfishness and self-centeredness. We are enticed by the world, by the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the third enticement John lists here is the pride of life. Some verses render it the boastful or arrogant pride of life. It is the attitude of raising oneself above all others and ultimately above God. It is finding fulfillment in the things that glorify the creature rather than the creator. Again, it's not the things per se, but the attitude that causes you to desire things. We have to have a roof over our head. We have to have clothes to wear. But what size house and why? What type of clothes and why? It's not the thing so much as the why we have to have them. It's not wrong to excel at work. But is that all you do? Sacrificing time with your wife and kids all to get ahead financially, to have lots of toys, to have the biggest house, the newest cars? It's all about attitude. I know people who won't be seen in Walmart. To them, the name Walmart conveys an image they don't want to be associated with. And they look down on people who go there. I know people that will only buy certain cars. They have to have certain emblems and certain brand name cars because it makes them feel important. When I worked in a bank several years ago, I came across many people who I knew were living on borrowed money but were portraying themselves out to be wealthy, dressing in the best clothes, driving the most expensive cars. They joined the best golf country clubs in town, golfed with other businessmen, and they acted like they were somebody, and yet I knew they were on the verge of bankruptcy by my position in the bank. But they were living way beyond their means, trying to portray and fulfill this desire to be a certain way. The people of the world actually are very good at exploiting this weakness. Once in between jobs, I took a position as a car salesman. It lasted two weeks. I barely made it out of the training class. But it definitely helped me to foresee some of the techniques and how they used them. But I did learn a lot from that experience. One of the things that they taught me was that if you could get a customer to test drive the car and take it home and park it in the driveway, especially in the afternoon, they made a point of saying in the afternoon, early evening. Why? Because that's when the neighbors come home from work and they might see it and come over and talk to you about it. And then it would be much harder for you to take it back once the neighbors saw the new car. They actually taught those things. Why? Because they knew how to exploit this boastfulness and arrogance and pride. They appealed to the person's sense of pride. The people of the world are expert at appealing to this boastful pride of life as well as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. They are experts because Satan is the ruler of this world and he is a master at it. When you take the time to study sin, you'll find that these three sins, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, pretty much encompass all there is. It was these three sins that Satan used in the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve and draw them into sin. He used these same three sins to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. All sins can 
basically be categorized within these three categories. And John uses them to describe the world system that we are forbidden to love. I love the way James says it in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. An enemy. Listen, the things of the world are not compatible with the things of God. They are in opposition to God. They are His enemies. And those who consistently practice these things are also enemies of God. Worldliness is a very serious issue. One, because those who are in love with the world demonstrate a lack of saving faith. Two, the things of the world are in complete opposition to God. And reason number three, the world is self-destructing. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. The word used in Greek for is passing away literally means to disappear. The verb used is in the present tense, which means it's already in the process of happening. The meaning is clear. The things of the world are passing away. They are self-destructing. They will not last. And the seeds of their destruction are already sown. It is already happening. They give enjoyment and pleasure for a season, but they are only temporary. They will not last. So what that means is many people today are wasting their life in futility, chasing after temporal worldly things that will not last. I came across a quote by John Owen, the famous Puritan, and he called this pursuit after worldliness a living affection for dying things. A living affection for dying things. I think that's a good description. Many in the world are living out this attitude. They spend their whole life chasing after things that have no lasting worth. It will all be burned up in judgment. And sadly, many who call themselves Christians are what I would call riding the fence. One foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. They go to church, they may consider themselves Christians, yet many of their friends don't even know it. They never talk about their faith. They may read scripture on occasion, but it has no real effect on their life. They rarely ever pray. Many are caught up in addictions like pornography and alcoholism and are consumed with making money, entertaining themselves every free moment. No time or motivation to serve in the church or ministry. They may say they love God, but all the evidence says something else, that they are in love with the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. I said this before in many of the Sunday school classes I've taught. I am firmly convinced if we could ever really grasp the concept of eternity that we would all live differently. I saw a preacher once give an illustration on the brevity of life 
in contrast to eternity. I've never forgotten. He had this large rope that he brought on from off the stage and he was pulling it as he talked. And he was pulling, the whole time he was talking, he was pulling this rope. It seemed like it never ended. It just kept going on and on. And he said, this represents your eternal life. And he just kept pulling this rope on and on and on. And at the beginning of the rope, he picked up where he started and he had put black magic marker on about an inch of it. And he had marked it off. And he used this as an example. And he said, this little speck of rope here is your life on earth. The rest of this is your life on eternity. And he just kept pulling and pulling on that rope. And he said, to make a point, he said that this life is just a speck. A moment in time compared to the, a life in eternity. And yet, think about how much energy, how much anxiety and worry and effort we put into this little bit. And we neglect thinking about all of this, this rest of it. This millions and billions and trillions of years that we have left to live in eternity. And we focus on this little amount. John tells us that if we love the world, its values and principles, we may not truly be saved. That all the world offers, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all these things are in opposition to God and that they are just temporal, fleeting pleasures that will not last. And in the context of this passage, John is primarily drawing a conclusion a contrast between real believers and those who are just pretending or going through the motions. He wants us to examine our lives and make sure that we are not in love with this world. That we are truly born again. Citizens of heaven. Of course, if you find that applies to you, that you fail this test, then I plead with you to repent and turn away from the world and turn to God and eternity. But the truth is, that all Christians at times are not immune. We live in this world, we are tempted by its lure, and at times we fall into worldliness or worldly attitudes. I have to admit that I'm personally acquainted with worldliness. When I was first saved, I didn't immediately rid myself of all worldliness. I was not in a Bible teaching church, and although I was sincerely trusting the Lord, I didn't really know the Bible, and I grew very slowly at first. But God was gracious to me and I didn't continue down the path of worldly pursuits. I still struggle at times, but I'm no longer in love with this world. Which brings me to ask the question I want to end with. How do we do it? How do we obey the command to not love the world? John told us what not to do. He gave us reasons why not to do it. But he, did he tell us how to do it? He did. He didn't answer the question in great detail, but he did answer it. He ends with this simple statement in verse 17 that says, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In other words, he says, in contrast to the person who loves the world, the one who selflessly makes himself the center of his own universe, the one who chases after the desires of the world that are passing away, in contrast to that person, the one who has eternal life, the one who endures forever, is the one who what? Seeks and does the will of God. That is the key to avoiding worldliness. It is knowing and obeying God's word. That's taught throughout scripture. 
the scripture in Matthew 7 came to my mind. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. The scripture that brings it all home for me has always been Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, do not let the world press you into their mold. Do not be conformed to their ideas and ways of thinking. Do not adopt their values and standards, but be transformed. Be changed by the renewing of your mind. What he is saying is to let the Word of God speak to you and change you. Let it shape your thinking, give you discernment and judgment that is based on biblical principles, not man-centered ideologies and values. Renewing your mind may mean some changes for you. What you watch on TV, what music you listen to, how much time you spend on the internet and social media. It might mean you need to implement more reading and studying and even Bible memorization of Scripture. Doing the will of God may mean reallocating your resources, your time, your money, the time you spend on ministry and service. It's not easy to live in this world and not succumb to its allures and desires. Jesus certainly knew that. That's why just before he was about to give his life on the cross and leave this world, he prayed for his disciples in this regard. Listen to Jesus' words in what has become known as his high priestly prayer in John 17. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. Jesus himself said, as he's praying, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This passage reminds us that we live, we work, we play, we minister, we serve in this world. And it is not and never was God's design that we live on a deserted island or hibernate in a monastery. But it's God's will that we are to be set apart amidst this world. The world should see a difference because we are different. If I could go the rest of my life and never hear of another believer falling victim to the lure of this world and the sin it offers and the consequences it brings, it would be a very joyful thing because it is so sad to witness. But sadly, reality teaches me that in churches all across our land and even here at Lakeside, we have those who have been ensnared in pornography. We have those who have been unfaithful to their spouse. Those who are held in bondage to materialism. Those whose minds are filled with jealousy and anger and many other worldly desires. It is my prayer that each of you here today, that none of you will fall into the footsteps of Demas and allow the love of the world to ensnare you. Test your faith. Is it real? Do you love the world? Or have you forsaken its allure and devoted yourself completely to doing the Lord's will? If you are in love with the world, it demonstrates a lack of saving faith and you need to repent. More likely though, you're like me, a believer who truly loves the Lord, but from time to time lets down your guard. Or maybe because of the busyness of life and the lack of discipline allows the lure of the world to creep in at times and 
It may destroy your witness or hinder your relationship with God. I urge you to guard against this. Do not flirt with the world. The world and the things of the world are diametrically opposed to God. And they are self-destructing. They are temporal and fleeting. Focus your remaining time in this life on the kingdom. Real joy only comes through abiding in Christ and obeying His word and doing it out of a deep, deep love for what He has done for you and me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight or watching on live stream that is in love with this world, anyone who has a living affection for dying things, that they will forsake this world and all of its sinful desires and will turn to Jesus, the living water, the bread of life, and their only hope. I pray, Father, if there are believers here that are trying to navigate this life by walking the fence between the domain of this world and the kingdom, it's my prayer that you will strengthen them and give them the courage to go all in, to make it their aim in life to separate themselves from the evils of this world and sanctify themselves in truth and in righteousness. For we know, Father, that this life is just a vapor. And even now, you are preparing us for eternity. May you help each of us live our lives in such a way as to reflect this truth. We offer all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.